All right, so one of the things uh, I want you to do, every one of you to do, is I want you to move your feet backwards underneath your pew as far as you can comfortably do this, do so. Yeah, so go ahead. The reason I'm asking you to do this is uh, because I care. I've asked you to, to move your feet as far under the pew and out of the aisle as far as possible because it is quite likely today I'm going to be stepping on some toes. <laughs> like I said, I care. Before we delve into our text today, I want to take you to the city of Delphi. Delphi was a uh, city about 30 miles northwest of Corinth. And one of the things that made Delphi such a, a well-known place or an interesting place was the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi was just simply a prophetess who resided at Delphi and she would commune with the gods and reveal secret and hidden wisdom and secret and hidden knowledge um, in the temple of Apollos. And she would reveal these um, so-called divine secrets to those who desired them. So here's what it would look like. She would go, people would line up for miles to seek the wisdom or to seek a word from this oracle. In fact, the lines would be so long, sometimes miles long, they had multiple oracles who would kind of work on a rotating basis. So this is a very significant part of Grecian culture um, in this particular time in the first century. And what the oracle would do is she would go into the inner chamber of the temple of Apollos and she would drink an herbal tea and some, some accounts say that she would breathe in the pneuma, which she would breathe in the spirit. And then she would go into a, a trance. Sometimes it was an ecstatic trance with visible manifestations, physical manifestations. And then she would begin to speak. And she would speak in incoherent words, words that had syllables that had no meaning. We might call it gibberish. And she would uh, speak in this as though she's communing with the divine and speaking out these words that um, it was a non-language. And next to her would have been a priest or a priestess who would write down what she was saying. So uh, a worshiper or a, a seeker would come and uh, write down his or her need or what, what they desired, the information that they might desire um, from this oracle, um, maybe on uh, uh, the health of a child or um, what does my future uh, look like or should I, take, uh, sh- should I take this journey next week or not. And so they would go in and they would present their request to the oracle and the oracle then would go into a trance and there might be some physical manifestations and then she would start this this incoherent speech and the priest or the priestess would write down um, this uh, non-language and give it back to the individual who would go out thinking, oh, how exciting, I have communed with the gods or the gods have communicated to me and they would read this gibberish and it would mean nothing other than the fact that they were satisfied that they had received some word from the divine. So keep that in mind because Delphi was not the only place where this, um, these oracles existed. Delphi was not the only place where this type of uh, event took place. It, it took place in Corinth, in the... Uh, temple of Apollos there. It took place in Athens. It took place all over um, the, the Roman 
all over the Roman world. And this then forms some of the background that we are going to consider as we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, I want to make a few connections um, as we go forward with this. We need to remember that chapter 14 um, does not stand by itself. We're going to spend two weeks in chapter 14, but it does not stand by itself. And so the, the connection here is that our text or this subject that Paul is addressing actually begins in chapter 11, verse 1. And there are problems in Corinth. We've been, as we go through the book of Corinth, 1 Corinthians, we recognize that there are problems in Corinth. They were... Um, Paul had chastised them for their hero worship, that they had certain preachers that they thought were um, especially important and they were segregated along the, uh, along the lines of who their favorite preacher was, whether Paul or Apollos or um, some other individual. And then we begin to see that they were also segregated or segmented along the, side, uh, along the lines of what we would call license. In other words, people were um, celebrating their so-called sexual liberties. That, um, uh, and, and so that was going on. Then you had the other side where people were saying, no, 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 freedom or license is not really... Where it's at, where it's at is spiritual rigor, religious rigor, to the point that people were even celebrating or talking about divorcing their spouses, showing how rigorous they were. It's like, well, we're not like those people with license sleeping around with whoever. We're so rigorous that we even divorce our spouses. We won't even touch them. And this is Paul, this is what Paul is correcting in this letter. And then, the, then we see the people suing one another. And usually this had uh, certainly an element of class um, segregation. The, the wealthy would do much better in a, uh, in a lawsuit than the poor. And then we get to chapter 11 and Paul is dealing with this, this mindset, this segregation has now entered into their worship. When they gather as a church... This same attitude has now impacted their worship or affected their worship. And Paul is now dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts. And the, the issue of spiritual gifts have actually divided the church. And they have divided worship. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul begins to address the subject of Spiritual gifts. And he is going to address the issue of uh, the division that these gifts have caused. Paul is going to say, spiritual gifts of good are good. The way you're using them is not. So, um, he is not anti-spiritual gifts. He is pro-spiritual gifts, but he is... Um, dealing with the way that they are being misused. And so in chapter 14, where we will begin today, Paul gets to the crux of the issue. And the issue is, what about speaking in tongues? And this gift had been exalted to the place of priority, and it was seen as a... um, as a measure of one's spirituality, as a measure of one's closeness with God. And so what Paul is writing is a correction for their misuse of, of this gift of speaking in tongues. He's going to contrast it with prophecy. Um, and, and so, and we'll see why. But he uses prophecy as kind of a foil against their misuse of speaking in tongues. Now, one more little issue. I, I, want, I want to provide a navigational aid for us. This will be helpful. One of the great things about hiking in the Superstition Mountains is Weaver's Needle. Weaver's Needle is really important because if you ever get turned around in the Superstition Mountains, all you got to do is look for Weaver's Needle. And if you can find Weaver's Needle, you can find your, you can reorient yourself and get yourself out of there. I think we have a picture of it. Maybe 
You guys have probably all seen it. Yep. Maybe you can see it. You can see it back there. And I took that one from a distance. I got that one because it's from a distance and you can see it. In fact, when you're driving down to Phoenix, when you hit Four Peaks Road, look to the left. You'll, that far away, you can orient yourself to where you need to be. I was talking to a ranger out there one day and he was talking to me about a person who got lost out there. And he kind of looked at the guy and says, you are right in the shadow of Weaver's Needle. You should know exactly where you are. So this will be our, this is our navigation, this is a navigational aid. Even if you get off trail or you get to a place where you don't know exactly where you are, you can look to this, to this monument, you can look to this one aid and you can figure out what direction you are and basically where you are. So, we have two navigational aids. These are, we have a very, very complex text in front of us today. Very complex. But we do have some things that are very clear. And we're going to use those clear issues to help us. So if we get off track or we start to get lost or we start wandering around or we're not exactly sure, if we get off the path, we can go back to our navigational aid and reorient ourselves. Does that kind of make sense? Here's our navigational aids. Number one, and like I said, a complex text that is, that probably everybody wrestles with. But here's what's clear. So what do we do when we have a a difficult passage? We go to what's clear. And what's clear, very simple. That whatever Paul is talking about in chapter 14, and we may have some different views, but whatever Paul is talking about in chapter 14, what is clear is that Paul's emphasis is that the church would be built up that the church would be edified. That is utterly and completely 100% as clear as we can get. We see it in chapter 14, verse 4, chapter 14, verse 12, chapter 14, verse 26. We see it in chapter 12 when Paul introduces spiritual gifts. What are they for? They're for the common good. They're that the church would be built up. And Paul, this isn't new for Paul. Paul has been writing this in chapter 8, verse 9, in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, in chapter 10, verse 33. Paul emphasizes the building up or the edification of the church. So if, I, if we start to wander, or we start to get lost, we are going to trace ourselves, get back to well, what is clear. What is clear is whatever Paul is talking about, It is the edification of the body of Christ. It is not for personal edification. I'll spend some time there. Whatever Paul's talking about, it is not for you. It is for the church. The second thing we should consider as a navigational aid. Whatever Paul is talking about, he is offering a correction. He is not praising the Corinthian church for their proper use of spiritual gifts. He is not commending them, saying, oh, look, you're doing this so well. What he is doing is he is chastising them. He is not commending them or praising them for their use of spiritual gifts, but chastising them for their misuse. So these are our, and and that's just utterly clear in our text. So, With that as a a bit of introduction, let's go ahead and I'm going to read our passages. Follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I'll read verses 1 through 19. Church, listen to the word of the living God. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? 
if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give a distinct note, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So Paul jumps into this fray with uh, this command, pursue love. Now you need to remember that um, the Bible, when it was originally written, did not have chapters and verses. And so we just got done with chapter 13, um, which is called the great love chapter. And Paul has highlighted or explained what he means by love and that that love is the premier. It's not a gift, but love um, of our brethren, love for one another is um, primary. And I want you to know this is not some vague love. Sometimes we talk about love in very vague or certainly um, non-biblical terms. We speak of love perhaps as defined by society, defined by culture. But the Bible gives us a very, very clear understanding of what love and what Paul is urging the Corinthians to pursue when he says pursue love. A couple of things we see that, number one, that the love that Paul is talking about in chapter 13, you can go back and listen to the message. It's, uh, it is on sermon.net, which is now on our, it's very easy to find on our website. Um, but Paul, the love that Paul is talking about is not a romantic, or not necessarily a romantic love. Um, but it is a, a love that goes much deeper than that. It is a love that continues to love even when there is maybe no benefit. I think um, of, you know, friends who have... Uh, been married for a while and they're caring for a spouse who um, has dementia and no longer recognizes them, no longer offers them really any companionship whatsoever. And you see them brushing their hair and combing their hair and taking care of them. And you see maybe the husband making sure that she has her makeup on and she looks good and that she's well-dressed and well-cared for. And he speaks kindly to her, to her or, he, or she speaks kindly to her husband. And there really is, and, and there is no, quote, benefit, if you will. They offer them nothing. And this is a great picture, I think, of the type of love that Paul is talking about. In fact, Paul talks in in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about a love. He says that love is not proud. Love does not seek its own. That love rejoices in truth. It is a love that is rooted in the nature of God and demonstrated in the person of Jesus. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this way, God loved the world that he gave his his only begotten son that the one who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. One cannot pursue love without pursuing Christ. So Paul is very specific. When he says pursue love, we need to understand the type of love that Paul is referring to. 
And it is a divine love. So Paul kind of concludes chapter 13 and transitions to chapter 14, pursue love. And then he says, and desire spirituals, literally spirituals. Um, The word gifts is in there. But anyways, I think Paul is saying you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can pursue love and spiritual things at the same time. You don't have to say, well, you know, I don't do the whole spiritual gift thing. I'm just more into the love thing. Or vice versa. Paul is saying, no, do both. Both of them are important. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Paul encourages the use of spiritual gifts. These are gifts that God has already given. I also want you to understand that this is a word to the church. The church should desire that spiritual gifts be present. The church should desire that the Spirit of God works mightily among them. We prayed oftentimes for various... We we could use certain help in certain areas. God, could you provide? And, And we can go through our, our history just here in the past. Well, we've, I've been here 21 years and I can go back and, and look at the 21 years where at the right time God has provided certain people and certain giftings for us to help us along. The church should desire. We should be pursuing love of one another and desiring that these spiritual gifts will be present. That the Spirit, we pray that the Spirit of God works mightily amongst us. This is what Paul is saying. Pray. Desire that the spirit, that spiritual gifts are operating in your midst. And then he says, and especially that you may prophesy. And I'm going to get just a little bit ahead of myself, um, but I'm going to do it. So, but especially that you may prophesy. And the reason Paul exalts or prioritizes prophecy is because it builds up the church. All gifts are given by God for edification, even the gift of speaking in tongues. But tongues in Corinth are being misused. The Corinthians are using this phenomena in a way that it was not intended. So Paul is saying, listen, desire all, the, the spiritual gifts are to be um, desired and even... Uh, and, and and welcomed within the church, but especially prophecy that you might build up the church. All right. Having gone there, we probably should maybe just back up just a little bit and try to define some terms. So I'm going to do my best to define both prophecy and tongues. Prophecy for me is very difficult. Probably maybe one of the most difficult Difficult, one of the more difficult terms for me to, to define precisely. I have not heard a great definition of prophecy probably ever. Um, now, as soon as I say that, here's what happens sometimes. I make that qualification and then I walk out and one of you comes up to me and gives me this really simple but awesome definition. I'm going, wow, how come for 20 years I've been wondering about that? And there it is. So if you've got a great definition for me, I will... Uh, I will be happy to receive it. But I have to look. So, so the first thing we need to do to define our terms is, well, how is this used in the Bible? Well, the word prophecy and prophets have a long history in the Bible. So we should probably go back and, and see how have prophets and prophecy been used throughout the Bible? Like I said, there's a long biblical history to prophecy. In fact, Jesus calls Abel a prophet. Abel is the son of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 4. So we have prophets going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. So what are they? Or what was the task? First of all, there's two questions and I won't get into it. What, what is a prophet and what do they do? I'm going to kind of combine the two. But anyways, let's just... Sorry, my brain is thinking and interrupting. If I were going to define Old Testament prophets, I would, I would define them this way. They were men and women who called God's people to covenant faithfulness. 
I think that's a fair definition. They are men and women who called God's people to covenant faithfulness. God had made a covenant with his people. And in that covenant, you can read about this, it's there in Deuteronomy especially, but we see it throughout. In that covenant, there are blessings for obeying God and there are curses for disobeying God. And when the people began to disobey God, God would send them prophets to call them back to covenant faithfulness and to remind them that you are on the verge. Remember all those curses that that you talked about in the covenant? And you agreed to. Remember Israel, you agreed to the covenant. And remember all those curses? They're about to fall on you. And sometimes God would send prophets over hundreds of years to call his people back to covenant faithfulness. And so there was a negative side. They would remind the people of God's anger towards his people for violating the covenant. And and this is very common. We also see a positive side. They would commend the people of God for responding to God properly. So they were kind of the keepers of the covenant, if you will. They were the ones who maintained um, or reminded kings and leaders and generals of, and the people of the agreement that they had made with God and the blessings and the curses that came from following or disobeying the covenant. Now, sometimes these prophets actually revealed the very mind of God. Um, we, we see this in Nathan. Remember, David wants to build, the t- build a temple. And, and at first, Nathan... David's prophet says, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then God speaks to Nathan saying, no, David's not the guy. So Nathan goes back to David and says, nope, listen, you're not to build the temple. Your son will build the temple, but you're not to do it. So here we see a prophet making known the will of God. We also see prophets um, giving insight to the future. Now, usually when we speak about prophets, that's the thing we, we, we focus in on, that they have an insight to what's about to happen. So if I were to, if, whenever we talk about prophets, that's probably the, the feature that we think most prominently about, but it's probably the least prominent role of a prophet. They did that. They spoke mightily about the coming of Christ. I think I've read, and I've never counted, but I've read that there are 400 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the person of Christ. 400! So, yeah, they did talk about the future. Um, But probably a a minor play, when you look at all of the words of the prophets, it was a call to covenant faithfulness. And in the New Testament... Um, we do also see then sometimes that the prophets would reveal the mind of God and sometimes that they would have a, um, a word about what was going to have happen. Um, but I'm going to define prophecy as a call to covenant faithfulness. And there, I'm just going to move on. So we've got prophecy. Now we've got to get tongues. So tuck your feet back because I might be coming down your aisle. What are tongues? This is actually much, more, much simpler, much less difficult than, um, than prophecy to me. This one's very, actually relatively easy. Tongues, very simply, that word glossa is used in a variety of different ways in the Bible, but it means languages. That's just what it means. And where is the first time we see this gift or this phenomenon of speaking in tongues? Well, we see it in Acts chapter 2. God providentially, this is the day of Pentecost that we as a church are celebrating the day of Pentecost, and... Just so happens, my text deals with Acts chapter 2. So God in his providence um, lined things up. 
And on the day of Pentecost, it says, it talks about, and there suddenly came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where the, the disciples were sitting, and divided tongues, we'll talk about that, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and this sound... At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And some mocked. So we have 16, at least 16 different languages being spoken here. And each person who, that was their native tongue, they heard these untrained, un, non-linguist fishermen and tax collectors speaking in their own language and saying, how is it that these men can speak in our language so that we understand them? And so they were speaking in languages that they had not heard. In Acts chapter 10, verse 47, another place where we see a similar thing happening, and Peter refers back to this event, saying that what is happening here in Acts chapter 10 is what happened there. So in Acts chapter 10, there is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit and people are speaking in other languages. And Paul is saying, this is what ha- or Peter is saying, this is what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So, what were they doing? They were speaking in languages that they had not learned. And what were they doing? They were declaring the mighty works of God. Which, by the way, contrasts the babel that I just previously t- um, mentioned to you um, that would happen at the Oracle of Delphi. Paul, that whatever tongues are, they are known languages. There is no no spiritual gift of tongues that is a non-language. The way tongues is used in the Bible, it's used of this physical organ, this tongue. It's used, and it's used of that a lot. James uses the tongue. Um, That's what we speak. Or if Jesus, um, the tongue was loose so that the person could speak. It's used figuratively like we saw in Acts chapter 2. Tongues as of fire, right? And we see that we might sit around a campfire and say that the tongues are... Tongues of fire licking the wood or whatever. So we see that. But when when it's used not of the physical organ or figuratively, it is always used of language. And so I think it's very simple. It is language. It's the only thing it can be. Pagan use was non-language, such as at the Oracle of Delphi. Paul's going to deal with that issue. So, when we get to chapter 14, verse 2, this is what we get. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Let me just go back to one of our navigational aids. Paul is not praising these people. And I think it's taken, this verse is taken as Paul is uplifting them, saying, look, if you speak in a tongue, you're speaking not to men, but to God. Paul is condemning that. Why? Because it doesn't build up the church. Let's go back to our navigational aids, which are clear. Paul is not commending them. 
He is condemning them for their misuse. The one who speaks in a tongue is, doesn't do any good whatsoever. Your non-language cannot be understood. In fact, you are mimicking pagan worship of the non-gods so prevalent in Corinth. Nobody benefits. Paul is chastising the church. In other words, this is not a good thing. Only God knows what you're saying, and you're not building up the church. Probably one of our a great cross-reference for this is in Matthew chapter 6. You know where Jesus was talking about how to pray. And one of the things he says is don't use meaningless repetition as the pagans. All right. Meaningless repetition. You ready for some Greek? It is the word batalogeo. Now, some of you may, uh, may see that word logeo and, and have, if you've been around church or had a little bit of schooling, you probably recognize logos, logos, word. Bata logeo. Bata is not a word. Bata is just a sound. Bata, Arvid, is an onomatopoeia. I told you I was going to use that word in my sermon today. I told you I am going to work in the word onomatopoeia in a sermon sometime in my life. And today, bucket list has been checked off. Now you're saying, well, we need a translation of that because that's just gibberish to us. Onomatopoeia is just a word that sounds like that's what it's describing. So a zipper, right? Zip. A bee buzzes, buzz, right? Gallop, 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 right? That's an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it's describing. Bata is an onomatopoeia. Bata, 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 bata. Don't pray like that, Jesus. That's the way the pagans pray. They pray bata, 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 bata. That's not how you pray. How do you pray? Our Father, the one in heaven, holy is your name. That's how the believers, the disciples, are to pray. Not bata, bata, bata. Just to bolster that claim, one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible is John 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer. Here's what you do not hear. Bata, 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 bata. Father, Glorify me with the same glory that I had with you before the world began. How about this? In the Garden of Eden. Probably one of the most emotional prayers recorded in the Bible. And what does Jesus pray? Not, un, not syllables just run together. Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. This is the type of prayer that Jesus has called, or that the way that God has called his people to pray, and has God called his people to do. So, and so, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. He utters mysteries of the Spirit. Again, this is not a commendation, but a condemnation. Contrasts, and then he contrasts this with speaking in a way that people understand. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So he's contrasting these, these two things. This makes no sense. On the other hand, this is what I want you to do. I want you to speak in a way that is clear, that builds up the church, that um, consoles, that encourages that calls people to covenant faithfulness even. There is a benefit to the church. Remember our navigational aid. Paul is now commending prophecy. Why? Because it makes God's word clear. Because the church can be built up. The one who speaks in a non-language builds himself up. Paul, this is not a positive statement. It is not praiseworthy. And it's not what tongues are, but what tongues have become. Paul's desire is, he says, I want you to speak in tongues. Okay, put on your thinking caps again. 
And I want to point something out, and I'm going to hold this with a bit of an open hand, but I think it's going to help us. It'll help us today, and I'll run into trouble next week, but don't worry, I'll, I'll work my way through it. Notice what Paul says. The one, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Notice that the first reference is singular and the second reference is plural. And I know some of you may think that's a silly observation, but I think it's significant. When Paul talks about a tongue as a non-language, he uses the singular. If you have a King James Bible, you will see that they, the King James authors or translators, I think they had this idea because they, they insert the word unknown. The word unknown is not in the Bible, but they insert that every time the tongue, a tongue, is used in the singular. But when Paul is talking of tongues in the plural, he is talking about the, 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 the language, the true gift of tongues that God has given. Paul is saying there is a real gift of speaking in tongues. It is a real gift, and it is one that God has given to his church, and it is speaking in real languages that you have never learned. But there is another misuse of it, and it's what the pagans do. It's what the oracle of Delphi do. It is bata, bata, bata. So Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues, real languages, as long as there is an interpreter. Why? Number one, because you can interpret a real language. You cannot interpret a non-language. There is no basis for an interpretation of a non-language. And I think we've, anyways. But you can interpret a real language. And it's objective, and we can actually say what that language says. So, when we're speaking in real languages, as long as there's an interpreter. Why? Back to our navigational aid, so that the church may be built up. So, I guess one of the questions we would get from this is, does Paul expect all people to speak in tongues? In other words, um, now I want you all to speak in tongues. We would, might think, well, see, Paul wants everybody to speak in tongues. But Paul just spent all of chapter 12 saying that's not the case. Is Paul contradicting Paul? I don't think so. Paul just spent all of chapter 12 saying um, not everybody has the same gift. And in fact, in chapter 12, verse 30, he asked a rhetorical question that demands a negative answer. Do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no. So when Paul is saying, I would that all of you would speak in tongues, Paul is not I'm actually saying I want everybody to speak. He's using hyperbola uh, in the same way that he used it in, uses it in chapter 7, verse 7, where he says, when he's talking about singleness, saying, I would that all were single like me. Paul is not, design, de, Paul is not demeaning the God-given institution of marriage. He understands the God-given institution of marriage and considers it good. But Paul then just uses this phrase, I wish that everybody was like me. And Paul's using it in the exact same way here. Paul doesn't desire that people would would frame from marriage. But gifts are given, let's go to what's clear, gifts are given for the common good and not everybody has the same gift. And any gift that is used solely for personal use is a misuse of that gift. All right. So, that's our first big segment. I'm not sure if we're going to speed up, but we'll keep going. Paul then enters into this next section, and it's, it's really an application. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, note, note the plural, real language, how will I benefit you unless I bring uh, uh, some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, um, there's a, I think there's a little bit of sarcasm going on. Paul is not instructing, Again, Paul is not instructing them, but he's chastising them. Now, if I come speaking to you in real languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, um, hmm. 
I'm just wrong place on my notes. Basically, how will I benefit you if I come speaking in foreign language? Again, the good of the others is at the heart of the matter. Paul is saying, even if the, me, the great apostle, comes speaking eloquently in a manner that nobody can understand, what good is that? If I come speaking to you in Chinese, and even if it's the most eloquent Chinese, and it's flawless grammar, what good is that to you? If you don't know what I'm saying. By the way, I can't speak Chinese, but sorry. If I come speaking to you, it doesn't do you any good. And then he gives these examples um, that forbids untranslated speech. And the first example he gives is that of of lifeless instruments. In other words, um, uh, a harp, which would be kind of like a a banjo or a a lute. Unless there's a distinction of sounds um, and rhythm, they're useless. I can prove it. You don't want me to, but I can prove it. I could go and pick up Suzanne's guitar and I could pluck on it. And it would make sound. And you would all say, stop, please stop. Is it making a sound? Yeah. Is it a horrible sound? Yeah. It's not music. You'd all say, whatever that is, it's not music. It is the plucking of an instrument, but it's not music. Suzanne gets up there, and we all go, oh, man, that's awesome. Even lifeless instruments, that unless they are played in such a way that they communicate to us um, the beauty of music, then they're useless. You do not want an instrument in my hands because it's just noise. An uninterpreted speech is just noise. And then he goes on, he talks about bugles. Bugles were a means of communication on the battlefield. Um, And if there is no distinction of sound, um, then the soldiers will be confused. And there are all sorts of ways that bugles were used. I mean, so like revelry is the beginning of the day and taps is the end of the day. And there are uh, bugle sounds to, to advance and go forward. And there are bugle sounds to retreat and come back. But if the bugler doesn't make a distinct sound, the people on the battlefield are going, I don't know what we're supposed to do. What does that mean? I don't know. And then finally, he goes into intelligible speech as his third uh, um, example. That is that even if with your tongue you utter speech that is unintelligible, that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what is said? You'll be speaking into the air. God's word must be heard and it must be understood. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It does not come through unintelligible, untranslatable speech. It comes through the clear proclamation of the word of God. There are many sounds in the world, but if I do not know the meaning of the sound, then we are like foreigners, and we cannot communicate to, him, to one another. We might be intelligent human beings, but if I do not know what you're saying, we are barbarians, which, by the way, is another onomatopoeia. So I'll use the word twice now. I remember I was bike touring in Japan, and um, when I got into the interior, I, nobody spoke English and I didn't speak Japanese. And so our communication was interesting. Um, most of the time, we all misunderstood one another, and I ended up in some weird places. Now, even our, I mean, we would try to use sign, even our sign language didn't work. I remember I was trying to catch a train and, uh, and this young lady was trying to help me and she didn't speak any English and I spoke no Japanese. And then she like waves goodbye to me. And so I go to Leo. I'm going, I guess this conversation's over. I mean, she did her best, but... And I go away. And, and she yelled after me and she's like this. And I'm like going, okay. And she's, yeah, she's like, no. And finally, I go, well, maybe she's not saying goodbye. Maybe I should. And she's like, basically, she was saying, come with me. She knew somebody who spoke English, and she was trying to get me to go with her to the person who knew English. I don't know that. Even our sign language didn't make sense. We were as barbarians to one another. 
Um, And this is what Paul is saying. I don't care how eloquent your speech is, how great your sign language is. If you don't speak intelligibly, nobody knows what you're saying. So be eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Paul praises the Corinthians for their zeal. He encourages them to have a zeal for building up the church. Now we get to our application. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue, notice the singular, should pray that he interprets. Um, Again, Paul is not instructing them, he is chastising them. The one who speaks in a non-language, that would be Babel, pray that he may interpret. Paul has gone to great lengths, great lengths to demonstrate that spiritual gifts are given by God just as he wills for the common good. There is nothing in the scripture that says that we would pray for a spiritual gift. God gives them to his people as he wills for the good of the church. And I grew up, or as I was saved, when I became a Christian, the church I went to would teach you how to speak in tongues. And this is not what Paul is saying. He says, well then, pray that he would interpret. Paul has gone to great lengths to demonstrate that spiritual gifts are given by God just as he will. Chapter 12, verse 28, God has not given everyone a particular gift. We do not pray for spiritual gifts because God has given them to us as he will. So Paul here is sarcastically saying, if you are going to pray in a non-language, pray that you say something intelligible. And then he goes on and he's talking about praying with the mind and praying with the spirit. And I'll just uh, kind of summarize this and then try to detail a little bit. And I am getting through this, but spiritual gifts do not vacate the mind. Spiritual gifts do not vacate the mind. Praying in a non-language may come from deep within but it has no benefit. If I pray with my spirit or breath, um, which is same same word, my breath is praying, something emotional may be happening, but there's no understanding. It's very experiential, but you accomplish nothing. The mind and the spirit have to be on the same page. There's a huge error in some of our tradition that that would teach and say, and this is what I learned very on in my early Christianity, which I have come to to reject, but the teaching is that when the Spirit comes, the mind is vacated, that we we set aside rational thinking, that the control of the mind is, um, that the, um, um, the lack of control of the mind is a sign of the Spirit's presence. That is, the more insane I act, the more the Spirit is there. That's just nowhere in the Bible. It doesn't exist. It nowhere says that if I'm flailing all over the place, wow, you've just completely lost control of your mind. You must really be in the Spirit. No, you've just lost your mind. That's all. This is what Paul is saying. Setting aside rational thinking is not a sign of the Spirit. Paul's correcting that error. In fact, Matthew 22, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your mind. Yes, I am not saying that worship or gathering together should be devoid of emotion. Please don't interpret that. But mindless emotion does not benefit the church. God never calls us to be mindless. God never calls us to function solely on emotion. And so, there should be, uh, and by the way, I'm not objecting to emotional worship. I think when we come in contact with the living God, that there will be an emotion. And perhaps maybe even in this church, at first when I was thinking about this, I was thinking maybe in our church, we are a non-expressive church. It's just the reality. We are a very non-expressive church. Um, there's, we've tried, but it's hard to get us to even clap our hands. All right. We've tried and we put forth good efforts as, but we're not a very expressive church. It doesn't mean there's no emotion happening. 
And so let's not confuse outward expression with emotion or something deep within the soul. I remember when I was part of a, a church that was much more expressive, dancing and just all sorts of stuff. And I remember one day sitting in a pew and, and I just just really deep in thought with God and God was doing amazing things. But everybody thought something was wrong with me because I wasn't expressive. And I suppose maybe in our church that's the way it is because the church tends to take on the look of its pastor and I am not the most emotional, expressive guy that there is. Um, It's just not who I am. That doesn't mean I have no emotion or I never express myself. And I think, I don't want to speak for all the elders, but um, we're not the most expressive, emotional group of guys that get together. Just not. But that doesn't mean that something deep within us isn't happening when we encounter the living God. But emotion and experience, I'm sorry, but um, uh, the control of the mind and the control... and is not vacated and is not a sign of the Spirit's presence. So what does Paul say? Paul says, well, I'm going to pray and sing with my entire being. I'll worship the the Lord in spirit and in truth. I'm going to pray in a manner that has a deep emotional origin, but also pray to be understood. And when I sing, I'm going to sing from deep within me, but I'm also going to sing in a way that is understood. And his reason is if, see because if you if you're speaking in a non-language, and somebody the uninitiated an unbeliever walks in and sees what you're doing, they won't be able to say Amen. Amen just means I agree. So be it. So when you're speaking in non-languages, they're going to come in and say I don't know what they're saying. I cannot say Yeah, awesome. I agree. In fact. What's going to happen? If your prayers don't make sense, how can anybody agree with you? How can we say amen? If you bless God in a known language or in a non-language, in a known language that is uninterpreted or a non-language, how can an unbeliever say, yeah, that's right? If a person comes out of a pagan temple where these emotional ecstatic utterances that no one understood or proclaimed and comes into your meeting and you're doing the same thing, how can he agree with your blessing? Actually, he's just going to think you're out of your minds, which we'll get to next week in verse 23, which Paul says, people think you're out of your minds. You may be getting an emotional boost, but nobody else is. And nobody else is being built up. So Paul is, uh, um, so this is kind of where Paul is going. And then he says this, he says, um, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul does not deny the true spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I speak in languages, notice the plural, I speak in languages, which would be the true gift, more than you, more than all of y'all. So Paul has this gift. Out on the mission field, this would have been a massive, massive advantage. And in fact, on January 1st, 1901, sorry, I just have to give this example, but on January 1st, 1901, Agnes Osmond was the first person um, in the modern era to speak in tongues under the direction of uh, William Fox Parham. And it is said that she, and this, this was the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement. It then moved over to Azusa Street in California. But the very first, Topeka, Kansas, 1901, January 1st, Agnes Osmond. And she spoke, they said, in Chinese. And she spoke for three days and wrote in Chinese. And the early Pentecostal movement, very, very infant, were thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. We are now going to be able to go into other countries and proclaim the word of God to people. And they did. And it didn't work. Because they would go to other places. Of course, they would go to China. After all, Agnes is speaking Chinese. And they went there. And the native speaker said, we have no idea what you're saying. And they came back dejected. And then 
speaking, the idea of speaking tongues got shifted. It's interesting because Agnes Osmond wrote down um, in Chinese what she was saying. <clears throat> it's interesting because in my last church history class, I had a student who speaks very little English, but he speaks fluent Chinese. And he, he had this bright idea. He looked up her writings on the Internet. It's like, well, that's pretty smart. I taught this class how many times, and I never bothered to do that. And he showed it to me, and I said, well, is that Chinese? He goes, that's not Chinese. And I said, okay, there's a lot of dialects in China. Are you sure it's not one of those dialects? He looked at me like, you idiot. (laughs) And he said, that's not Chinese. At that point, I believed him. But Paul had this, this real gift. And it served him well on the mission field. But in the church, Paul says, I, I want to be understood. I can speak myriads of myriads, infinite words, in a language that is not translated. But in the church, I'd rather speak five words that can be understood. That's what Paul says. I'd rather preach the gospel in a way that can be understood. So, I thank you for staying with me on this one. But I'm going to conclude with this. God has spoken clearly. God has made himself clear. God did not speak to us, bata, bata, bata. God has spoken to us. In fact, John Calvin says, God speaks to us in baby talk. In other words, God speaks to us in a way that is accommodated to us, that you and I can understand. Imagine if God spoke in all of his infinite wisdom, we, would, we wouldn't understand a thing God said. But God has spoken to us in a way that we understand. He has made himself clear. Jesus is called the Word of God. He has made God clear. And he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He is the clear expression of the love of God. He took our sins upon himself on the cross. He bore our penalty. God's wrath that was due to us because of our rebellion against him was poured out on Jesus. We can now be at peace with God. How Because clearly Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. He has spoken clearly. There is no misunderstanding. There are mysteries in the Bible that we struggle with. Here's what's not a mystery and here's what is clear. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and raised again on the third day. Repent and believe these things. Not only that, Not only has God made himself clear, God has given us a clear message. It is a simple message. It is called the gospel. Gospel just means good news. 